Thank you to our listeners for your support of our Scholar Spotlight podcast series. We want to note that this episode was recorded in February before the pandemic and acts of racial violence occurring in spring 2020. Welcome to the AERA Writing and Literacy SIG podcast. My name is Karis Jones. And my name is Alex Corbett. And today we have the honor of speaking with Dr. Eve Ewing. Her writing and scholarship spans historical ethnography, poetry, comics, and much more. The theme of this podcast series is for guests to share their work, mentor other writers and scholars, and cite others that inspire their work. Before we get to questions, we'll start with introductions. Dr. Ewing, would you start us by introducing yourself and your work? Sure. Um, my name is Eve Ewing, and I'm an assistant professor at the University of Chicago School of Social Service Administration. Um, I'm the author of a few different books, and I write all kinds of stuff. And um, I also used to be an eighth grade English language arts teacher. Well, sixth, seventh, and eighth grade English language arts teacher. Awesome. Welcome. We're so excited. And at, we mentioned before the interview started that um, both Karis and I are big fans of uh, both your comics, Ironheart, and your poetry uh, and the curriculum that you've done with 1919, as well as uh, Ghost in the Schoolyard. So thank you so much for joining. Thank you. I appreciate you having me. Um, so first, we'll uh, just kind of ask about your process kind of as a writer and how you negotiate uh, the different genres and spaces that in which you write. Um, so first, uh, in a recent interview with Marvel, you mentioned that you're kind of, quote, sort of addicted to creating across new genres and modalities, and that you kind of enjoy the process of learning, being apprenticed and collaborating. Um, given your brilliance as a writer, it seems natural that various projects and spaces kind of vie for your attention. How do you navigate these polls while also exploring new ways to represent and advocate uh, Chicago youth? Yeah, thank you for that question. Um, to be honest, it's probably one of the questions I get asked the most often and the one that I feel least capable of, of answering um, because I don't, I think to me, um, I, I see myself as a person that has a lot of ideas and a lot of questions and I um, just sort of dive into whatever modality feels like the, the best way of um, of engaging with that with that question or that idea and so um, to me it feels more normal I guess and, and something that I also think um, a lot of writers that I've looked up to in the past um, everyone from Zora Neale Hurston to W.E.B. Du Bois um, to you know in the more contemporary setting somebody like um, Ta-Nehisi Coates who's a friend and mentor of mine this idea of um, just kind of picking up whatever tool makes the most sense and I think we know how to do that as teachers and as researchers, right? Like we move between different methodologies. If you're a researcher, um, you know that you have to kind of match a methodological approach to the question you want to answer. And as a teacher in literacy or in any other setting, you know that you don't just keep, you know, trying the same strategy over and over. And so um, for me, I think it's really a pretty natural or normal thing to do. And I think it's really sort of a matter of giving yourself permission to feel like you can uh, go about something a different way. Thanks for sharing. 
Going off what you said about having these questions that you really want to dive into, we wondered, what audiences are you particularly interested in reaching and answering these questions for? And how do you find yourself speaking differently for each one? Sure. Well, I think audience is something that is um, really paramount and important to me. And I find myself, like whenever uh, a writer or a scholar, anybody asks me for advice about how to do something, it's the first question I always ask is about audience, because I think that it's really hard to have clarity as a writer, to have a sense of focus, um, if you don't have an idea of who you want your audience to be and who you want to be accountable to. And so, um, you know, I've written different books and different projects that in some ways are, are kind of primarily geared towards different audiences. But I think that regardless of what I'm writing, I, I always think about young people as an audience. Um, young people, I'd say roughly between the ages of like 13 and 20 um, as, as an audience in, in pretty much anything and everything I've ever written. Um, and maybe that comes from the fact that I was a middle school teacher and also because I think that I came of age as a reader and a writer during that phase in my life. I think a lot of us kind of imprint on some of the ideas that will shape us most profoundly um, and the authors that we feel most connected with when we're in that phase of our life. Uh, and I've, I've said before that I think, I think young people make canons. And I think that a lot of writers don't think of themselves necessarily as you know, quote unquote, YA authors or writing for young readers, um, or they think of that as kind of being like a, a specific silo or a category that they may not fall into. But I think that, you know, a lot of people in our country, in our society, if you ask them who their favorite authors are, or what their most memorable experiences as readers are, certainly within the realm of, of poetry, um, if you ask most people who their favorite poets are, or even just to name any poet or name any poem, they're really likely to cite something that, you know, their English teacher introduced them to when they were in middle school or high school. So I just think of that age group as being really vitally important. Um, and I say kind of half jokingly that maybe that's also where my own development as a human being kind of like ended there. I'm sort of always 12 <laughs> um, and maybe that's why like I don't know I do my pursuits are kind of like those of a 12 year old but um, yeah I think everything I write is is always trying to be accountable to young people in some way at least so far you know that could change in the future and um, it's something I've been wrestling with because I have a, a book coming out um, in the next several months that is um, a middle grade book so it's for kind of like uh, second third fourth graders and um, I've been describing it as my first book for young readers, but even that doesn't, you know, feel sort of disingenuous to say that because I, I've always, I'm always trying to sort of write for young readers to a certain extent. And do you have any advice as, um, you know, given that our, our audience are, uh, is scholars who work with literacies and educators um, who work with kids, um, do you have any advice about how to navigate some of the institutional pressures of academia that might, you know, for example, folks on a tenure track who are pressured to publish exclusively in journals? Do you have any um, kind of advice about how to do better uh, advocacy work within the constraints of that space? Well, I'm a junior faculty member. I don't have tenure. So it's always a little funny to me when right. people ask me that question because I'm like, I can say whatever I want. And, <laughs> and then like, I, I don't know if I'm the best person to ask because I'm not asking on the other side of, you know, um, having my choice 
voices be institutionally affirmed in that kind of formal way. And so I could, you know, I know the way I think about it, and I'm happy to share that. But I, but I also think that there are real risks. And that, um, you know, I guess I'm always wary of people looking at my work as an example and saying, like, see, it's possible to do these different things. And, you know, I, I, I guess the, all the choices that I make are the choices that I make because they feel right for me politically, artistically, humanistically. Um, but I also, I don't mean this to be like alarmist or anything like that, but I'm, I'm also fully prepared to not get tenure um, for the things that I, that I do. And I, you know, I happen to be in a department um, where I feel very supported and where I feel like I'm on a, a good track. So when I say that, it doesn't mean that I don't think that I'm going to get tenure. You know, I'm very superstitious. I'm knocking on wood. Um, I feel I feel positive feedback from my peers and my my colleagues and you know my dean so that I I think I'm doing well in that regard. But what I mean when I say you have to be prepared to not get tenure, um, it means that um, you know everybody kind of has to decide what their own priorities are and. I think that it's really, I guess, kind of a pet peeve that I have is um, I think that sometimes folks who do really incredible work of all kinds, whether that's community engagement or creative writing or activism, um, that they get frustrated when those things aren't rewarded by the institutions that they're a part of in formal ways. And the thing is, is I just, I don't expect that because I don't see any signals that that's the kind of institution that, you know, that that's how academia is, right? And so I think it's important to kind of enter into academic work with your eyes wide open. And if you know that you're mm -hmm. going to be judged on a certain set of fairly restrictive criteria, then you make the choices you make. Either you say, well, I'm only going to do these kinds of work that I know are valued, mm -hmm. or you say, I'm going to do all this other kind of work that is important to me and is important to the world for all these other reasons. Uh, or you do both. And um, I think that if you say, I'm, you know, I'm only going to do this other kind of work, you have to be prepared for the fact that it's not going to be institutionally valued, because that's the deal you made. Um, mm -hmm. It's kind of like, that's, you know, I think a lot of other people seem to think that academia is like moving into being less rigid about what kinds of work is valued. And um, that certainly may be the case. I don't plan on banking on that. <laughs> and so, you know, the choice that I make is that, I, um, you know, I do lots of creative work and community work and work that I don't expect to necessarily be valued in traditional corridors. And I'm also trying to check all the boxes and live up to the fairly restrictive set of parameters that are expected of me as a, as a tenure track junior professor. And it means that I'm trying really hard to basically do both things. And that's really tiring and really difficult at times. Mm -hmm. um, and there, there are trade-offs. And so, you know, um, I just think it's important to not, um, uh, there's a, there's like a, a, a saying in black vernacular, like an idiom where you say like people think fat meat ain't greasy, you know, or it's like, mm -hmm. a, a, I guess a version of that kind of standard American English version of that would be like, you know, if you can't stand the heat, get out of the kitchen, which doesn't exactly mean the same thing. But basically, like, you have to know the terms of engagement that you're choosing to enter into. Mm. And you take it or leave it. And, um, you know, there are lots of other really satisfying, amazing forms of work that you can do in the world and, you know, beyond the tenure track in academia. And uh, I think that it's also really important to not kind of like fully define yourself by the strictures of of this one institution. So 
Uh, yeah, that's my like fairly, my, some people might call it a cynical answer. I think of it as just a pragmatic answer mm-hmm. is, you know, I'm just trying to do a lot of things and I don't, um, if somebody were to come to me and say, you know, every single word that you've written of a comic book, every single word of poetry that you've written, that is a word that you should have dedicated to, you know, writing a peer reviewed journal article. I think that that's not how writing works, but I, right. I, it wouldn't mm-hmm. be fair for, or reasonable for me to be surprised at that. Um, cause I knew that that's what this was when I, when I pursued this path and there are lots of other benefits, um, to doing this, this kind of work. And so, you know, you, you pick and choose. Really helpful. Mm. I, yeah. I, it's kind of a downer, but you know, it is, I unfortunately no. I don't have like, <laughs> I don't have like a magic button that just gives me 48 hours in a day. And I spent like half of my time doing, you know, perfect academic work and half of my time doing perfect other kinds of work. You know, it's, I'm just, uh, just doing my best with the time I have like everybody else. Absolutely. And, and, and in asking that question, we certainly don't, um, you know, anticipate you, you know, to reify the structures of academia. Yeah, it's a, it's a really good critique and definitely orienting uh, as, you know, emerging scholars. Yeah, and I think that other emerging scholars will appreciate your honesty as they're thinking through these kinds of questions for themselves. Yeah, well, thank you. I mean, I, you know, one thing I will say is that I am all the time pleasantly surprised at how much um, my colleagues, and I mean, you even wanting to have a conversation with me is, is an indicator of this. I'm pleasantly surprised all the time at how much my colleagues have been uh, really affirming of the kinds of non-traditional, you know, I don't know what to call it, like uh, things that I do that are outside the traditional bounds of academia. And, mm-hmm. you know, I'm really deeply grateful whenever that happens and uh, really excited and really moved and really honored. Um, and it makes me wonder if maybe everybody is actually more, you know, excited about these other kinds of work than, than we traditionally assume or admit. It's a little bit like the thing that's happening right now with the election where everybody's like, well, I want to vote for this person, but I don't think other people, you know, they're not electable because other people don't like them. And Mm -hmm. it's like, well, after a while, who are these, who are these other people? (laughs) You know, I've, I've Mm -hmm. been really, um, so it makes me wonder if, if all of us, you know, might be pleasantly surprised if, if we took a little bit more risks and maybe we should give our, our friends and colleagues a little bit more credit that they, they might actually have more expansive interests than we realize and, and be more supportive of us than we realize. But, you know, like as a black person, as a Chicagoan, I just have a lot of training that really, um, you know, teaches me that you never count on anything until it's signed, sealed, and delivered. And so, mm-hmm. um, uh, as much as I am, again, like grateful, pleasantly surprised at, at how much people enjoy this work, I'm just going to go ahead and assume that if I want tenure, I have to do all the regular, regular things that people are supposed to do to get tenure, and that's that. Oh my God, so good. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> You're yeah. welcome. So we've got one last question for you, and that's knowing that our listeners include both emerging scholars and scholars rethinking their work, who are the folks inspiring your thinking at the moment? Which voices in the field or in the world should we read, cite, and amplify? Oh, gosh. Um, that one I should have prepared for so I could think of um, some, some good people. Um, <laughs> well, you know, one way that I can answer this question is um, I, you know, I teach, um, I teach courses for undergraduates and master's students and PhD students, and I'm always paying attention to um, which books and which texts 
are um, really clarifying and illuminating for my students, uh, especially texts that are about um, that you know tackle very complex issues in ways that feel approachable um, to to students and that make them feel like oh I you know I get this thing. Um, so there are a couple of books and kind of thinkers that I would um, that I would shout out, um, some of whom don't really need my shout outs because they are <laughs> very well known and beloved and maybe mm -hmm. others who, who won't mind it. Um, but there's a book that I teach uh, called The Color of Mind, Why the Origins of the Achievement Gap Matter for Justice. It's by Derek Darby and John Rury. And it's a really great book um, for, it, it's really slim, it's short. And, um, and, you know, they're writing from multiple perspectives, both historical perspectives as well as philosophical perspectives to talk about, um, how what we refer to colloquially as the achievement gap is deeply embedded in the basic American presumption that black people are unintelligent and, and subhuman. Um, and they do it in this really clear, accessible, short way um, that, that I think really works well with students. Um, also a scholar that's meant a lot to me just in my personal life and someone who I look up to a lot um, is Erica Miners. And, I've been teaching her book, Right to be Hostile, um, which I think um, is really helpful in helping students. You know, one of the most common things that uh, educators and students come to me and say is like, I want to work on the school to prison pipeline or I want to stop the school to prison pipeline. And Erica's work is um, really important in helping us understand that actually, you know, she's kind of reframing that as what we refer, refer to as the school prison nexus and helping mm -hmm. us understand that it's not just about how we are sending many of our students to prison through things we do in a school setting, but actually how um, the, the terrifying ways in which we also reproduce, um, you know, kind of the logics of, of prison incarcerality in our schools. Um, mm -hmm. So that's one that I would also shout out. Um, and let me see, I guess two more. Um, one is, um, you know, again, this is the category of people that like don't necessarily need my shout outs because they're doing great, but Nicole Hannah-Jones um, and her work has been really helpful for my students um, and in thinking about how day-to-day decisions that folks make um, really play into supporting broader systems of, of school inequality. Um, two more. Um, there's a book I've been teaching called White Kids. It's by Margaret Hagerman, and it's an incredible um, ethnography of, uh, of exactly what the title suggests, White Kids. Um, and if you are a scholar who has spent your whole career kind of thinking about what students of color are doing and what families of color are doing and, you know, how like the things that are wrong with them and the things that they should be doing differently. I really encourage you to read this book, which is an incredible deep dive into the ways that um, even very well-meaning white parents um, can really uh, reproduce white supremacy, even as that's something they're struggling with, with their parenting. And my last, very last for now <laughs> book so, recommendation um, is one that I'm just teaching for the first time this year. It's called Discrit. Um, the subtitle mm. is Disability Studies and Critical Race Theory in Education. Mm. And it's edited by um, a few folks, including um, David Connor, Beth Ferry, and Subini Anima. And um, it's a really great book that brings together disability studies and critical race theory in ways that, um, you know, kind of allowing some of the best ideas of each of them to challenge each other and build something more robust. And, you know, just in, when I was a teacher, you know, 
everybody used to say like every teacher is a special ed teacher, right? Like thinking about disability and special ed is, is something that isn't just the job of some specialist, but it's actually everybody's responsibility if you deal with young people. And I think that um, it's a really great book for engaging with some, some tough and important theoretical ideas around engaging with race and, and disability. So um, just off the top of my head, those are some of my, some of my faves right now. And, uh, you know, specifically like the things that I think have really resonated with, with students in different ways. And, and maybe one comic that's in your bag. Oh, right sure. <laughs> so I'm going to go ahead and do an unapologetic plug for my own work do uh, it. because yes. it's something that I'm, I'm writing specifically hoping that a lot of young people will engage with it. And so um, for Marvel beginning in March, um, I'm doing um, a story called Outlawed. Um, and so it's, it's what we refer to in comics as a one shot, meaning it's not um, a series. It's like a single, a single story that is then going to launch a bunch of other stories. And mm -hmm. so Outlawed um, is written by me. And basically what's going to happen is that um, in this story, Congress is going to pass a law that makes it illegal for anyone to be a superhero if you're under 21. Um, and so all of these like young heroes um, that we know and love, people like Miss Marvel, Kamala Khan, and Riri Williams, Ironheart, and um, Miles Morales, Spider-Man, and, and lots of their friends and loved ones are going to have to contend with what they do with that. Like, are they going to violate the law and just be superheroes anyway because they think it's important? Um, or are they going to, you know, obey? Or what, what are they going to do? And each of them is really a different person with different things at stake. And so they're not going to look at the, the decision in the same way. And um, what's going to follow from that is a series um, that already exists, but, but I'm going to be kind of um, doing a relaunch of called Champions, which is um, a teen superhero uh, team. And so um, it's definitely like a very sociological comic book series in the sense that I'm trying to really engage with questions about, young people, safety, autonomy, agency, um, and, you know, how young people are or not allowed to make decisions for themselves about their, their own lives in different arenas of our society. And so um, I think it should be pretty cool. Um, and I, it's something that I would really love lots of young people to engage with this question of like, should young people be allowed to be superheroes? And I think it's a, actually a pretty complicated question. Um, and so that you can, folks can look for that starting in March. Um, Outlawed will be out in March and then the series Champions will begin in April. So I hope you check it out wherever you get comic books. Yes, so exciting. Can't wait to read it. Thank you, I hope you like it. Um, so we, I think that's it. Um, we appreciated having you and thanks so much for talking with us. Mm -hmm.